Well, good evening, and thank you for joining me. It's a really big and empty room, but I get to share the word with you and share this time with you. So thanks for taking the time. Uh, if you're watching this, if you're listening to it or watching it later on in the week, uh, we're going to continue our study in Luke chapter 9 in just a little bit. But I'm really thankful for your desire to learn from the word. I'm thankful for your participation here at Grace Church. And we're just um, excited, really, to, to be able to continue to study God's Word in a very normal way. Maybe excited and normal don't go together, but they should, because we get to see what Christ is doing in this gospel. And I get the privilege of sharing it with you. So uh, let's pray before we begin. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the clarity of your Word. Lord, it's not mysterious from the standpoint of we can open it, we can read it, we can understand the words. But God, it takes the Holy Spirit to help us to welcome its message, especially when that message convicts us, shows us who we are without Christ, shows us what we ought to be with him. So God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do his work through the word this evening. I pray that each person hearing the word might see ways where they can become more like their Savior. More than just learning lessons, God, we pray that we might change to become like him. We thank you for the freedom that we have to study it uh, and so, Lord, I pray that you'd be given glory. In Christ's name, amen. Like I said, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. Before we do, I just want to encourage you to please keep notice of the changes that are taking place from a schedule and from a location standpoint. So right now, the services that normally meet uh, in Sunday school or Sunday morning are meeting here on site. Included in that is Wednesday evening. So really, the only time that we haven't returned back on site during a service time is the Sunday evening, which is why we're recording this message. But uh, there still are some levels of introduction, levels of, of difference. Um, and so I want you to just want to encourage you on behalf of our staff and on behalf of those who are um, trying to communicate in an effective way to be checking the website, be looking at those weekly emails. They're sent out on Wednesday. And I'd, I just want to encourage you to, to keep abreast of that information. Also want to encourage you to keep in prayer Pastor Steve and Charlotte Sindelar as they begin their, uh, their month-long sabbatical. It's going to be a, a wonderful time for them, Lord willing. Just pray for safety and, and normalcy uh, as they take that time away. want them to enjoy uh, just restful time with one another. I enjoyed it last year. I know a number of you were praying for me while I was gone, and uh, my family was gone. It was a wonderful time. was able to come back, really recharged, and, and desiring to see you all and be with you all. And I know the same will be true for Pastor Steve. So please just keep him and his family in your prayers. And also, if I can say this politely, please leave him alone. Uh, he's a wonderful man. He's a busy man. I know he loves you. His wife loves you and his family. They all love you, but... Um, this is a time where, where they get to be on their own. And, and I know Pastor shared that last week. And, and so I just want to encourage you all with that too. And I say encourage, not like command. All right, well, let's get into the word. Luke chapter 9. And we're going to be in verses 37 through 50 today. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. I don't know if you've ever heard of the term paradigm shift or the phrase paradigm shift. Uh, something uh, that was used, was popularized earlier in the 20th century around a, more of a scientific way of interpreting data. 
but it kind of bled its way into society, into economics, into education, into business, into law. This concept of paradigm shift. Webster's Dictionary defines paradigm shift as an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. Let me read that again. It's an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. Recently, I was reading a book uh, written by a, a missionary to Cambodia. And he explained how when he went to Cambodia, being an American, he moved there and uh, sought to become a part of the culture, to acclimate to the culture and, and learn cultural ways. Well, certainly it was a paradigm shift for him, but in many different ways that he wouldn't have anticipated. For example, uh, while he was there, he planted a mango tree. And this mango tree took a long time to grow and actually be mature enough to produce mangoes. Well, the first season that um, the, the tree was able to produce mangoes, it had three mangoes. And it was something that this missionary was looking forward to eating. Well, this missionary uh, hired someone to come do some work on his house, and that laborer came and on his lunch break saw those mangoes and ate all three of them right off the tree. And for this missionary, the missionary was appalled. He was actually quite upset. He's like, how in the world could this person, this laborer, come and take this fruit off of the tree that I grew? Well, it was a paradigm shift for him because there in Cambodia and really in many other cultures outside of the United States, hospitality, especially hospitality with food, is a given. When you have someone over, you share your food with them. In fact, it's just a norm. Here in the United States, where we're a bit more individualistic, we're a bit more uh, focused on private property, for someone to come and take food without us asking would be an invasion of privacy. Well, in Cambodia, to be stingy with one's food, especially food growing on a tree in your yard would have been, that, that, that would have been looked down upon. It was a paradigm shift for the missionary. As we look in Luke chapter 9, we're going to see the disciples experiencing paradigm shift after paradigm shift after paradigm shift. In fact, their entire experience as disciples of Jesus Christ was one big paradigm shift. And really, that's the message I want to share with you today from this passage. That discipleship is a lifelong paradigm shift. It's a lifelong change when our way of thinking or doing something is replaced with God's way of thinking and doing something. And we're going to be seeing three paradigm shifts here in this passage in Luke chapter 9. Here in this passage, the disciples are learning lessons. We see Jesus casting out a demon from a boy where the disciples couldn't. We see Jesus predicting his death for a second time. We see the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. And then we see the disciples complaining about someone doing ministry the way they aren't doing it or doing it in a different way. And in these circumstances, what we're going to see is that the disciples were constantly having their way thinking challenged by Christ's teaching and actions. Now, I also want to bring to your attention, and Pastor Steve has been preaching through the chapter 9 here in Luke for the past several weeks, but I also want to bring your attention 
to this last verse, Luke chapter 9 and verse 50. And the reason why I want to bring your attention here is because after this verse, there really is a shift of attention in the book of Luke. You see, up to this point, Jesus and his ministry, and really the narrative of Luke, has been focusing on Jesus in Galilee. But starting in verse 51, where we'll look next week and weeks to follow, Jesus' focus is going to be on Jerusalem. His focus is going to be towards the work that God had sent him to earth to do. But in the meantime, we see a lot of action taking place in the book of Luke. From one event to another event to another event to another event. And a lot of times it's difficult to correlate one theme for all of those events. Yet, what we'll do today here is we'll just look at how Jesus challenged the way that the disciples were thinking, and consequently, how he challenges us, his 21st century disciples, in the way that we think and the way that we approach being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's start reading in verse 37. Verse 37 picks up right after what we would call the transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John are there with Jesus Christ. His appearance changes. He starts to glow. You have Moses and Elijah joining him. The disciples are fearful. Peter suggests that they stay there. Uh, and then after, after uh, he, he mentions that, uh, there's a voice from heaven. It's God who's saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So you have this fantastic supernatural event take place where the disciples are hearing the voice of God. They're seeing Jesus in a glorified form with Moses and with Elijah. And so verse 37, where we're going to start now, picks up right after that event. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, Jesus. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him or destroying him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. But while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him into the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This account is recorded in the book of Matthew. It's recorded in the book of Mark. But there are several details here in Luke's account that aren't included in those other accounts. In fact, Luke, as he writes this, really edits the story significantly. In fact, in this passage, I believe it's only seven verses, whereas in Mark and Matthew, uh, there's 14 to 15 different verses, and you get more details of the scenario. But there is one detail that Luke includes here that isn't included in Matthew and Mark. And this is the first paradigm shift that I want to draw to your attention. And it's found in verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. The first paradigm shift I want to bring our attention to is that God's majesty is seen in conquering evil and not just the voices from heaven. 
God's majesty is seen in conquering evil and not just voices from heaven. We see that uh, in this passage, everyone was amazed at the greatness of God. Now, why do I say this was a paradigm shift for the disciples? Well, I want to very quickly turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 16. Obviously, this is written by the Apostle Peter. Peter, who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, there having seen Jesus glorified, but then also coming down the mountain and seeing Jesus perform this miracle. He says in verse 16 of 2 Peter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Note this. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is referring to the event of the transfiguration. And he says in verse 16 that he was an eyewitness of his majesty. But I want to turn our attention back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. If you were to look in the Greek, you would see that the word for greatness is the exact same word that Peter uses in 2 Peter for majesty. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter, James, and John. And yet, all of the people there that saw Jesus perform this exorcism recognized, as it's stated in verse 43 of Luke 9, they were all amazed at the greatness of God or the majesty of God. And that's why I say God's majesty is seen in conquering evil and not simply, simply, not just voices from heaven. Now, what I want to do here is just briefly dissect what is going on. It's pretty straightforward, but we do see a response of Jesus and we see a situation that's that's really incredible. In fact, it almost causes us to question whether or not Jesus was in a good mood. And the reason why I say that is because when you look at Jesus' response, after you have this, uh, you have this scenario where the man is begging for his son to be healed, uh, the, the, the crowd is surrounding him, the disciples have already tried to uh, cast out this demon. And then when Jesus is asked by this man, Please, will you, will you heal my son? The disciples tried to cast out the demon, but they were unsuccessful. And then you see in verse 41, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? You know, when you think of the, the Hollywood version of Jesus, the meek and mild, the one who walks by the outcasts, 
the one who gives love to the Samaritan woman who has multiple husbands, the one who says, go and sin no more to the woman caught in adultery, the one who kindly and affectionately cares for little children and puts them on his lap. And we see this Jesus that just loves everybody. Or at least we have this mental picture. And yet we get to verse 41, and it's almost as if, man, they really caught Jesus in a foul mood. I mean, what's going on here? I think from a human standpoint, that could be the approach. Because how often do we see in his ministry him addressing the crowd or addressing people that are coming to him like this? You know, the only other scenario I can think of, really, is when Jesus goes into the temple and he turns over tables. But there you have these money changers and, and, and these people who are corrupting God's house and turning it into a den of thieves when it should have been a house of prayer, right? Well, in this circumstance, you have a man whose son is demon-possessed. And where is he going? Well, he's going to Jesus. He's going to the disciples. He's going to them to have his son healed. What's wrong with that? Why would Jesus be so upset? Not only that, you have the disciples. I mean, you know, it's kind of like one of those, well, bless their hearts. I mean, they're trying their best, right? They tried to cast out those demons. And yet Jesus looks at this scenario, and he seems perturbed. He seems upset. Jesus, who's the model of patience, why is he so upset? Well, these other accounts in Matthew and Mark present Jesus just as upset. So lest we think that this is just an emphasis of Luke. No, the other accounts do show Jesus in the same way. But really what we see here is that Jesus is surrounded by what he describes as unbelief and what he describes as perversity or, um, uh, or, or something that is corrupt or crooked, depending on your translation. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. And if you really step back and you look at the scenario, you'll see a couple of things. First of all, you'll see a crowd that really is about a show. They're there to see Jesus perform a miracle. Um, and we know that based on the fact that in the book of Mark, you have Pharisees, religious leaders there, arguing with the disciples about doctrine, about the law, about whatever. You see the disciples who are um, they're trying to, to cast out this demon. And, and you know, mentally, you, can, you, you have this picture of this child who's being possessed. And, and just the mental image of that is, is somewhat terrifying and certainly disturbing. And the disciples trying to cast out this demon and being unsuccessful and the crowd watching it. And it became about everything except good. It became about the lack of success of the disciples. It became about the, the points of argumentation for, the, for, these, um, for, for these spiritual leaders, these Pharisees that were there. And then you have this father who's just pleading, please help my son. Can somebody please help my son? And in one of the parallel accounts, he even says, if you can. So Jesus comes into this scenario and he's confronted with unbelief, and he's confronted with sin. This child was being tormented to the point where 
you know, the New American Standard describes it as mauling him, this demon was. And so we see evil literally everywhere. We see evil in the hearts of the Pharisees. We see evil in perhaps the motives of those who are arguing with the Pharisees. We see evil literally embodied inside of the child with that demon. And Jesus comes from enjoying perfect fellowship with Moses and Elijah and hearing the voice of his father coming down. And this is what he's confronted with. You go from literally the high top of the mountain to the valley below spiritually. And so Jesus says, you w wicked, you unbelieving and perverted generation. And when they would have heard that, they would have immediately been brought back to, at least the Jews there in the audience, those who knew the Old Testament, they would have been brought back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, how Moses described the Jews as, or the nation of Israel as they had wandered through the wilderness. He said of them, they have acted corruptly towards him. They are not his children because of their defect, but they are a perverse and crooked generation. And in verse 20 of Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. At the beginning of Luke 9, Jesus gave the disciples authority to cast out demons. For whatever reason, they couldn't cast this demon out. In Mark 9, Jesus did say that this type of demon could only come out by prayer. So it seems to be that the disciples may have been relying on their past experience. Hey, we did it before. We can do it again. And when Jesus says this part only comes out by prayer, perhaps their dependence was not on God. And so Jesus came down and he took the chaos of the situation and with one word, he settled it all. Evil was conquered. And as we read in verse 43, they were all amazed at the greatness of God. The paradigm shift was from the disciples' ability to cast out demons to the greatness of God. This phrase, as I said, is not included in Matthew and Mark's account. It is reflective of what Peter described of the Mount of Transfiguration and seeing how the greatness of God revealed on the mountain is akin to the greatness of God revealed in his power over evil. Now, do you ever think about just how much more convincing our gospel presentation would be if God manifests himself in ways like he did in the Mount of Transfiguration? Like, if he did the, you know, the, the wow moments in our lives or in the lives of somebody, if he could just speak down from heaven and people could hear, or if he could just do something miraculous and people could see. But the fact of the matter is, is that God reveals his majesty in those ways, or at least he did and will, but he still reveals his majesty, his greatness in his conquering of evil. And we don't need to look any further than the testimony of those saints who've been saved. Those saints who once lived in darkness, once were dead in their sins, but now have been made alive in Jesus Christ. I think of baptism testimonies. I think of people who stand before the congregation and they testify to what they were before they were in, they were in Christ. 
And if they were to have perhaps predicted where they would have been, where they've, what they've become, it's only by the greatness of God. In fact, some of you perhaps listening to me right now are thinking of yourselves in that same way. We all should at some level. But isn't it great of God for him to take a person who, from human standpoint, is unredeemable, is too far gone, that their sins are so great, there's no way that God could get a hold of their heart. And yet, what does he do? He can change them. Why? Because he is great. Jesus wanted the disciples and everyone there to see that his greatness is what they should be seeing. That instead of looking perhaps to a formula or instead of looking to a past experience, instead of looking to themselves, they should look to the greatness of God that it can conquer evil. So that is the first way that the disciples' perspective has changed and altered the way that they would look at the ministry of Jesus Christ and ultimately their ministry as disciples. But the second shift I'd like to share with you is this, that Jesus' way often looks different than the way you would choose. Jesus' way often looks different than the way that you would choose. Okay, so here we are, starting in verse 43, in the middle of verse 43, it says, But while everyone was marveling at all Jesus was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Jesus' way often looks different than the way you would choose. Now, in Luke 9, this is the second occasion where Jesus predicts his death. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus shares with his disciples that he's going to be delivered, that he will die. And when he tells them to listen carefully, he uses these words, let these words sink into your ears. Get this, disciples. Get it. What are they to get? The Son of Man. Notice the word play here. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This is the Son of Man. And yet, in verse 45, it says, they were not able to understand because it was concealed from them. Well, what concealed it from them? Perhaps their self-centeredness? Their self-centeredness kept them from understanding? Perhaps the timing? I mean, you had these two miraculous events, the transfiguration, which three of the disciples saw, the exorcism, which all of these people saw, and then Jesus comes with this? But they were afraid to ask. Why? Because they understood the literal words that were spoken. They got it. I mean, they understood subject verb, you know, meaning. But they didn't appreciate what it meant or accept the significance. It's kind of like telling someone something that they refuse to believe. Telling someone something that is so difficult for them to, the, to, to accept that, that they refuse to believe it, that, that they, they can't believe it. You know, perhaps tragic news of cancer or death. And the person 
in shock, says, no, no, that can't be true. That's not true. This past week, I was having a discussion with one of my daughters, and we were just talking about the reality of hell. And the more I thought about the reality of hell, intellectually, it makes sense from the standpoint of, okay, the Bible says it, and I believe it. But when you think about the, the implications, when you think about the reality of eternal hell, it's terrifying. And it's almost, I mean, if I'm an unbeliever and someone's telling me that, and maybe this has happened with you, it's happened with me, where you share the reality of hell based upon what the Bible says, and they say, no, I, I can't believe that. I refuse to believe that. It's kind of like what the disciples were hearing from Jesus. <laughs> this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here he is casting out demons. And oh, by the way, all of the other miracles prior to Luke chapter 9, feeding of the 5,000, casting out other demons, talking to the seas and the waves. And now he's saying, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to crucify me. And they say, no, I refuse to believe that. But Jesus tells them, let this sink into their ears. Let this sink into your ears. So how does this relate to us? Well, let me put it this way. Let this sink into your ears. Being a Christian means carrying a cross. Being a Christian means carrying a cross. Look earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, um, 23. This is right after his first prediction of his, his crucifixion. He says this, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one that will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Being a Christian means carrying a cross. Not just wearing one around your neck, but actually losing your life for Jesus Christ. And our tendency is to want a Christianity that causes as little discomfort as possible. We want really to fast forward through the difficult parts and see the beauty of Jesus, to appreciate the promises of Scripture, to be home in heaven with him, and to enjoy eternity. And all of those things are true. But the fact is, is that being a Christian here on earth means that we have been called to deny ourselves and to carry a cross. So how then do we experience joy when the Christian life can be filled with this cross, with this difficulty? You know, when Jesus tells uh, those who are following him in Matthew chapter 11, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. How do we put those two together? Well, can I tell you that, and, 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 and I want to be careful how I say this here, but our Christianity offers a joy that is different. It offers a peace that is different than perhaps our world understands it. And here's what I mean by this. We must combat the thinking that joy is experienced 
by staying away from not joyful things. Let me say that again. It's kind of wordy. We must combat the thinking that joy as a Christian is experienced by staying away from not joyful things. What do you mean? Well, having a difficult time with another believer, maybe some trouble in the relationship, well, avoid that person. Or at least avoid addressing the issue in their life or perhaps your life. Maybe you're confronted by poor stewardship of your finances or of your resources. Well, ignore that counsel. Don't change any habits. Just kind of put them off. Don't, you don't have to listen to that. Okay. What I'm trying to get at is that it can be the pattern in a Christian, if we're not careful, to somehow distance ourselves from the uncomfortable aspects of being a Christian and thus seeing joy in what we're not around. When in fact, God has called us to carry a cross, to bear the burden of being a Christian, and in doing so, have a joy that comes as a byproduct of perseverance, of endurance. Think James chapter 1, verse 2. James says to, to the Christians there, Consider it joy, reckon it as joy, when you experience various trials. Why? Because the trying of your faith brings about endurance or patience and patience will have its perfect work endurance will have its perfect work so that you might be complete and blameless before him that's the joy that's offered to those who are following jesus christ but it comes with a cost your life and when jesus says the son of man is going to be born into the hands of men he's going to die that really was a picture not only of what he would, what it would cost him, but ultimately what it would cost his followers too. This was a paradigm shift. And so it must be for us as well. Your faith, your Christianity will cost you your life. Paradigm shift number three, and with this I close. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hold this till next week because this kind of dovetails a little bit into the, the, the next week's sermon. So I'm going to stop right there. Um, we'll pick up here next week, uh, just looking at the time. Um, and there's some things I want to develop here in this section. And rather than go too long, I want to just abbreviate it here. But I just encourage you um, to be reading through uh, this passage of Scripture, if you would. Uh, keep reading through. We're, we're working through the book of Luke. We're going to be picking up here, obviously, next week. But um, as we look at what Jesus is doing, he's not simply about just changing perspectives and having us learn lessons. He's about us becoming more like him, like us changing the way we live in response to our perspectives, our outlooks being changed. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the example of the disciples. Thank you for these men who, while we sit and we could be like the armchair quarterback who is uh, just almost chuckling at, at their foibles and how they don't get it. And they're seeing all this stuff and how Jesus is constantly correcting them. God, we're in the same place. We have your word. And yet 
time after time, we need to be reminded of things we already know. God, help us to grow. Help us to change through your Son. Help us to reflect the new life that is within us. And God, thank you for the patience you had with these disciples who the book of Acts says turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. You've given us a little place of ministry here in Northeast Ohio. May we, for Christ's sake, do the same. May we point people to Christ. And as we do so, God, continue to change us to make us more like you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for the time. Look forward to continuing in Luke chapter 9 next week. Have a great day. Great evening.